Australia's submarine program. But also adding complementary unmanned undersea capabilities well before the first attack class turns up. And that to me is the bridging strategy that Minister Dutton may have to force onto defence. Mapping China's technology giants. There's concern about their oversized power and how they stifle competition. There are concerns about misuse of consumer data and concerns that, you know, consumer rights are generally not being treated correctly. And post-COVID nation building. The things that we had didn't serve us well. We've got this opportunity to really change a lot of things and it just takes a little bit of vision, a little bit of courage, I think. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Arguably the biggest submarine program in the Western world outside of the US, Australia's submarine development continues to raise concerns around cost. Michael Shoebridge and Dr Marcus Hellyer examine the outcomes of the recent Senate estimates in relation to the underwater program and what the life of type upgrades mean for the submarine's future. Well, Dr Hellyer, uh, a lot to talk about in the undersea world when you look at um, Senate estimates and some of the interesting testimony from defence officials there and also uh, discussion publicly about Plan A's and Plan B's and the Prime Minister meeting with French President Macron uh, this week. So I suppose it'd be good to start with what did we learn about the Collins upgrade? Well, Mr Shoebridge, we've learned quite a lot out of the last estimates and some recent quasi-government announcements. So we've learned, I think, from estimates that the life of type extension is progressing Uh, We learned that Defence has already ordered the first set of motors and generators for the first columns to be upgraded, which will start in 2026. So behind the scenes, things do seem to be progressing. It is a kind of another interesting example of how this government sort of releases information by media release. If it's not a media release, we don't learn about it at all, except through estimates, But which is kind of strange. But anyway, work does seem to be progressing there and some significant decisions must have been made by the government for Defence to commit that funding. We're still uh, waiting to hear about full cycle dockings moving west and by default the life of type extension which is essentially a a big full cycle docking. You start to think that the status quo will remain if we don't make a decision because you are getting inside that window of opportunity to Mm. move. So Mm. you sort of start to think all of that will stay in South Australia and so that's where the life of type extension is. You know one thing that struck me hearing the estimates discussion was for all the talk about defence moving to a program approach, it's not clear that there's a combined industrial strategy for Collins uh, and the attack class. And you look at, it's not a life of type extension, it's a major upgrade of just about every system beyond the pressure hull of the Collins. So main motors, generators, sonars, electronics, maybe replacing the periscope with an optronics mast. Surely the fact that there are six Collins plus 12 attack class means this is a huge critical mass of submarine upgrading and construction that should be part of a... It should lead to a combined industrial strategy where we exercise purchasing power 
that the only other country in the Western world is making in the undersea domain is the US. Only the US Navy is exerting greater undersea purchasing power. Well, I, I agree. If you take the six columns, which essentially in many ways will be almost a, a new build in some aspects because they're all getting new main motors, new generators, new electrical systems, you combine the six columns with the 12 attack class for a total program of 18 s- submarines that are going to be using, if not identical, but very similar uh, systems, it is probably, as you say, the biggest submarine program in the Western world outside of the US. You would think that that would give us huge commercial leverage, but also sufficient mass to drive a kind of industrial strategy here. And so we may, certainly we're not going to design main motors from scratch here, but you would think we would be able to establish some kind of Australian industry capability, at least in the assembly of main motors and diesel generators. Mm. And potentially some of the subcomponents. You know, the way people talk about generators and main motors, you know, well, we're only buying 12 uh, attack classes, not critical mass, we've only got six columns. Well, there are 18 and there are multiple generators and main motors per submarine. So they're not single-formed units, these main motors and generators. There's, there's a whole supply chain opportunity for Australia inside each of those big items. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if we've already committed to the first one for the first of the Collins class to go through the upgrade. Have we designed that industrial strategy yet? And again, there's been quite a lot of silence around that. The other uh, issue where there's sort of been a lot of silence, I guess, is that at estimates we learned that ASC and Defence haven't really had any engagement with Saab at all to this point, which is very odd considering they're the original designer of the Collins class, but they've also just gone through their own massive uh, life of type extension or upgrade of their own submarines, which are essentially the same design pedigree as the Collins. So you think Mm. if you're about to embark on this huge piece of work, you would talk to the people who have just gone through a very similar program, but that doesn't seem to have occurred yet. Well, you're right. Um, We've seen with the loss of the Indonesian submarine, we've been reminded that undersea operations are extremely risky endeavours. And risk mitigation seems to require talking to Saab and getting their experience in creating what is essentially a son of Collins themselves. So that they have done a massive upgrade. In fact, they've even designed uh, ballistic launch tubes at, at, in, a, in an extended plug that fits into their submarine. So there's significant uh, risk reduction experience available from Saab. We, we must be talking to them mm-hmm. and it's very surprising to hear that that isn't happening. The, the other thing we've learned uh, occurred after estimates when the media quoted the defence minister who has said we will do all six of the, the Collins. Now, to me, that is a, a virtually a no-brainer that you would do all six, but the number has never really been nailed down. Originally, defence seemed to be thinking about three or four, but as the schedule for the attack class has kind of firmed up and a little further into the future than we may have originally been thinking. Defence has been sort of talking about five or maybe even six. So the Mm. the ministers said six. To me, that makes sense. I mean, because that... Just to get to the currently planned uh, IOC, initial operating capability, so the first operational boat for the attack class, you really have to do... at least four, doing five or six gives you a little bit of float in your schedule in case there's delay. Mm. But the other thing is, is 
we're going to need more submariners with a bigger fleet of larger submarines. So having more Collins classes around and sort of more overlap with the attack class gives you a bigger fleet sooner and more submarines means you can train more submariners. So in a sense, aside from the capability yep. argument of the, keeping the crew at least submarines, it, yep. there's that long-term training yep. capacity argument. So you know, to me, it makes sense to do all six. Well, absolutely, and I think this is the problem with ad hoc decision-making. So good on Minister Dutton for saying, yes, it'll be six, because suddenly we're now able to talk clearly about a critical mass of 18 submarines and the industrial opportunities that open up there for Australia. I think Peter Dutton is sounding a bit like Brendan Nelson with the air combat capability gap discussion where defence officials insisted the JSF was going to be on time, uh, the classic FA-18s were going to last, just you know, stick with the plan, Minister. Brendan Nelson didn't believe it and he took a big decision to get the Super Hornets. The bridging strategy for attack class delay seems to me to be upgrading all six columns but also adding complementary unmanned undersea capabilities well before the first attack class turns up. And that, to me, is the bridging strategy that Minister Dutton may have to force onto defence, just like Brendan Nelson forced the Super Hornets onto defence. Mm-hmm. I, I do think some of the talk around a interim capability, such as a buying an off-the-shelf German submarine, which some people in the media have speculated about, is kind of crazy talk. There's no way I think we can get even an off-the-shelf boat into service much before the attack class. And then what do you do with the Collins fleet? Are we going to operate three fleets simultaneously? You know, the Collins, the interim fleet, and then the attack class. You know, it's so I agree I, I, with you. I mean, if, if you want to bankrupt the Navy through procurement and sustainment budget pressures and uh, create a horrible crew retention and creation problem getting a third manned submarine class into service is the best way to create problems. So Australia's adversaries should wish that we get some weird third manned submarine as a bridging strategy, whereas uh, an undersea unmanned system like the Boeing Orca doesn't bring any of those problems and is a path to a required future capability anyway. So that, to me, is, is part of this credible plan to deliver results in light of the attack class delay. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this on this theme in different ways before, and it basically comes down to when your strategy has many, many major risks, and I don't think anybody would deny that there are major risks, not just in the Navy submarine strategy, but also in its surface ship strategy, which is probably a topic for another day. When you have major risk, you hedge. It doesn't mean you sort of walk away from your plan A, but you also do hedging Mm. bets or investments to make sure that you can cover some of those risks should they eventuate. Now, the kinds of systems that you're talking about, so complementary systems, we're going to need them whatever the future is. So whether it's attack class or, or something else, large undersea vessels, you know, unmanned surface vessels, long-range strike weapons that are not you know, subsea or surface delivered, so whether they're aircraft or long-range strike missiles, we're going to need a range of complementary systems. And whether that's you call that plan A or plan B, that's what we need to be doing. And I think part of the problem 
with this obsessive focus, and I've you know, called it a fetish, around submarines and finding a submarine plan B kind of mm. ignores that reality yep. and, and keeps looking at the, the solution as another submarine, that if we somehow get submarines right, all will be right yes. in the world. Yes, whereas you're saying there are capability options, whether they're complementary undersea mm. unmanned systems Same. or long-range strike. Same. Absolutely. So, you know, this is a fascinating time for Dutton as the new Defence Minister. For him, the best result is Naval Group knows that the political leaders of France and Australia are paying full attention to it and he has the opportunity to pressure Naval Group uh, to think about this 18 submarine approach to the whole supply chain and to design in the attack class able to work with complementary capabilities. Uh, that's his opportunity to shape an effective bridging strategy and deliver real capability for Australia. Thanks very much, Mike. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Michael. ASPE's Mapping China's Technology Giants project provides an overview of the global impact of Chinese technology companies. Tom Yuren is joined by Fergus Ryan and Daria Impionbato for a discussion on how US sanctions have impacted the growth of these organisations and how the Chinese Communist Party's political influence creates privacy concerns. G'day Daria and Fergus, welcome to the podcast. Hi Tom. Hello. So congratulations on your new report. Is it remapping China's tech giants, reining them in? I know it was a labour of love for both of you and a huge amount of work went into it, so congratulations. Three things leapt out to me that I thought we could talk about. One is that there's been both a sort of technology backlash from government and regulators in both the US and China, and I thought we could talk a little bit about the ways they're the same and the ways they may be different. I thought we could talk about the way US sanctions, in my view, seem to have been aimed to try and destroy these companies. Is that a good idea? Has it worked? Do we think that'll change with the new Biden administration? And then we could talk about some of the language that struck me, that, that the Chinese are talking about tech innovation as a national security issue, which seems a li little bit different from the way we talk about it here at least. So first of all, there's been a backlash against Chinese tech companies as well. I've observed it happening with US tech companies. So how's it the same and how is it maybe different? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about um, writing this report was that we discovered that of the 27 companies that we map in our project, most of them were, very, were buoyed by the COVID pandemic, um, much like many uh, Western tech companies, as lots of um, people turn to digital services um, under lo lockdown conditions. Mm. But it was a really, you, you know, despite that short-term boon to them, there were, it was quite a tumultuous period because, as you said, there was this, you know, onslaught of sanctions from the United States. But also, towards the end of 2020 and going on now in 2021, there's this massive regulatory storm that has engulfed many of these companies in China. And there are similarities to what is happening with big, mainly US tech companies and the sort of antitrust concerns that regulators have about them. You know, for example, um, Facebook and Google and Alibaba and Tencent, there's concern about their oversized power and how they stifle competition. There are concerns about misuse of consumer data and concerns that, you know, consumer rights are generally not being treated 
correctly. But I, I guess the the important difference between what's happening in the United States and Europe in the big tech tech, uh, tech clash and China is that in China, as with everything in China, when it comes to business, there's a political overlay. And the I guess if there's a sort of main takeout from our analysis, it's that the combination of the COVID-19 pandemic and the US-China trade war and the you know, technological strategic competition going on between these two superpowers, that the combination of those two things made the Chinese leadership realise that they have quite a vulnerability when it comes to technology and they uh, have sought to use this regulatory action to ensure that Chinese tech companies more closely adhere to the CCP's industrial policy. And that's because uh, the Chinese leadership sees these key strategic uh, pieces of technology as absolutely essential to the national security of China. Yeah, right. So what I would, one of the things you mentioned was the consumer rights issue. So how does that play out in China? My vague impression is, uh, you know, I guess informed very crudely by things like there's no such word as privacy in Chinese. Like, is that even true? Or, or how does that play out over there? No, that's definitely not true. Yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> privacy is, um, as in any country around the world, of, of great concern to consumers in China. I think that's, that's a common misconception mm. about, uh, about China. There is a lot of discussion in Chinese media about privacy and the rights that consumers uh, should have to their own data. Again, the, the key difference is this political overlay where it's a one-party state and the Chinese Communist Party certainly does make laws and, and is working on laws at the moment to strengthen data privacy protections for consumers. But that doesn't mean that they don't want to have access to that data <laughs> themselves, right? Um, so I guess that's the sort of fundamental difference. Now, onto the sanctions that have been levelled. How many companies were sanctioned in the lo- in the 27 that you looked at? 16 yeah. out of the 27. So it seemed to me that the point of the sanctions was not just to achieve sort of narrow political goals around you know, selling technology or whatever, but they were actually designed to try and cripple and, and destroy some of these companies. Do you, is, is, that, is my take right? And I guess the questions that lead on from that, uh, does that seem like a worthwhile policy goal? Did it work? Maybe what should we be doing instead? I think it's a fair conclusion to get to looking at how the US has been sanctioning, particularly some of these companies like telecommunication companies like Huawei and ZTE. Um, ZTE actually struggled for a very long time it was one of the first ones to be sanctioned back in 2016 and they almost had to shut their business in the US at the time but then they sort of managed to get out of it by paying fines and mm. swapping the leadership around a bit right. um, not really making any significant changes in my opinion but yeah so now they have been growing in the past five years and they have expanded in developing markets especially so in latin america and africa 
but a lot in Europe as well. So if the point of those sanctions was to actually cripple these companies, it hasn't really worked out. And what's happened is actually the opposite. So because the Chinese government has so much interest in these companies, they've just increased their own funding and their own investments into um, developing these um, sorts of technologies. Um, so their market in China and in Asia uh, hasn't been impacted almost at all. Mm. Yeah, and just to jump on to what Daria said, the interesting thing about what happened with the sanctions is that they were certainly designed to slow down the advance of many of these Chinese companies. Um, we also shouldn't forget that there are human rights concerns about many of these uh, companies, particularly the surveillance companies and biotech companies, um, some of which are involved in activities in Xinjiang that involve the um, oppressed Uyghur minority population there. Um, so there's a whole slew of reasons why um, many of these companies uh, ended up in the firing line of US sanctions. But one of the sort of perhaps unintended consequences of the, this onslaught of sanctions is that it has made Chinese regulators and the Chinese leadership job much easier in identifying what their weak points are and what they need to work on. Right. And there's discussion from Xi Jinping down of choke point technology. And these are specific essential building blocks in technological progress that China now has a more keen understanding that we need to really figure out how to do this ourselves if we're ever going to have true self-sufficiency. And so, you know, a, a great example of that is semiconductors, which, mm -hmm. you know, are the, are the building blocks of much of the technology that China wants to be the most advanced in. Yeah, I guess that brings me to the question about tech innovation as national security. But one other thing I also want to know about is what, whatever happened to ByteDance? <laughs> because I remember there was quite a lot of talk about that, and then it just kind of faded away. Where's that at now and what's going to happen there? It's actually very funny because when Trump banned TikTok and WeChat last year, we had just published our report <laughs> about TikTok and WeChat. So we had a similar conversation about that. Mm. That ban was reversed by Biden and the main reason was that when it was made, it wasn't done properly. The administration didn't go through due diligence, I guess, and they didn't really... Amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the point is, if this company needs to be better regulated, but it needs to be done properly. Yeah, so there's genuine concerns still, but you need to address them the right way rather than the... Yeah, and ByteDance has thrived throughout COVID. As we've seen, it's been one of the main sort of winners of the pandemic and they've been making donations uh, left and right globally actually um, yeah and their revenue has just increased and they're doing pretty well but you think there'll be more scrutiny of bite dance going it, there forward there is always going to be scrutiny of bite dance but maybe it'll be a sensible scrutiny perhaps Hopefully. Hopefully. And finally, tech innovation as national security. I, I guess you touched on this talking about how it made the Chinese government look at its choke points, you called them? Yeah, and that's the word that Xi Jinping um, himself uses and, and repeats in speeches, you know, to the Politburo and um, that are published in um, outlets like Qiushu, Seeking Truth. Whereas in the past, China's industrial policy, and when mm -hmm. I say in the past, just only you know, five or so years ago, um, China's industrial policy campaign was the Made in China 2025 campaign. 
And that was, that was much broader in scope. And the, the sort of idea was, here are some major areas where uh, China should advance in and here's some funds to help push that along. Whereas now, thanks largely to um, the sanctions, uh, the Chinese leadership has a, a much clearer idea of, well, we don't need to talk about pushing this industry forward. Let's focus on this specific technology, this choke point. And if we really redouble our efforts on that, then we can make significant scientific breakthroughs and then um, hopefully be leading the world in technology. Sounds like a story about unintended consequences and policy. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Thank John. you. Fergus. In a conversation about nation building, Dr John Coyne and Jill Savage discuss why Australia should rethink its approach to infrastructure in a post-COVID environment. Using the Port of Townsville as an example, they outline how greater cooperation between regional, state and national governments can achieve economic, social and environmental prosperity. Hi, today we're sitting down and talking about one of ASPE's latest special reports, one that you and I did together, Collaborative Nation Building, Port of Towns or Case Study. The title really doesn't do justice from my perspective in terms of the breadth of what we're talking here because it's obviously nation building. But let's start at the real start of this, which is why Townsville and what is it about Townsville that makes a good case study? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. There are probably lots of options we could have gone with. One of the key things around the port of Townsville was the effort and the time that they'd already put in. And I think that's a really significant aspect around the nation building. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not about, you know, somebody getting a big idea and putting some big money in and expecting something to turn up next week. They'd spent a lot of time planning and investing and also engaging with their port entities, the the clients of their port, to understand what they were needing and how the port could deliver it for them. Now, you know, I've talked a lot about this, both in the report, bouncing off each other, so just so the listeners are really clear, Jill and I, are, we're big into nation building. We sort of got this, and I know that it's a, a term that, you know, it's very loaded and things like that, but when we talk about nation building, we're really talking about thinking bigger. Now, when it came to Townsville Port, it showed one of the points that you've been really raising and hammering home to me, which is there's all these silos of yeah. people and activity. So do you want to take us through those? And, and I guess also looking at you know what we saw with how Townsville has done that in the port. Yeah, and I think, you know, the world is a really complex place. So when you're talking nation building, people go, oh, my God, you know, where, where do you start? And what often happens, and I think what's happened in Australia for a long time, is that we have segmented. So either by sector, by jurisdiction, by particular geographic location to be able to do things that are clearer and simpler. And I think that's one of the challenges around future-leaning, future-looking nation-building is that you've got to bring a whole bunch of complex things together because that's what the world is about. And if you don't do that, you miss opportunities. So one of the things that, that really stood out about the Port of Townsville is that they, they recognise that people and entities organisations, defence, companies were in their port for all sorts of different reasons. If they didn't understand what those reasons were and look at synergies and look at potential collaborations, then it was a missed opportunity. 
So it was really perpetuating the challenges of the past, which is the siloed thinking. You know, we've got this organisation over here doing X that's completely unrelated to another organisation on the other side of the port. Being in such a a small geographic space as well, it was even more critical to understand that and understand the types of uses, not just users, but uses that the port was going to be put to. And so the aspects around, well, where is defence really going in the context of its port needs and how does that sit next to a potential hydrogen facility in the same location? Um, And I think all these things are possible and I think that was the thing that sort of attracted me most about what was happening was there were no early sort of, no, this is not going to happen here, you know, they've got cruise ships, they've got all sorts of things happening and it was about accommodating all of that. And I think if you take that thinking and apply it to any regional area that really needs a nation-building boost, then, you know, you can't box things. You can't say, well, we're just going to look at this little bit now and we'll see what happens with that. You've got to engage with that complexity. You've got to engage with all those bits that at first blush probably don't look as if they fit well together. You know, and you know that that resonates with me, but when you use the term nation-building or when you're looking at silos, some people can sort of say this sort of policy discussion is very Pollyanna. But, I mean, to put it in context, before you came to Aspie, before you came to... Before that, to the private sector, but you spent a large chunk of your career as in the public service um, and, and a large chunk of that within the senior executive service ranks. You've done a lot of projects. You've seen how difficult it is to cross some silos. I mean, how does that reconcile between the two, your experience in crossing silos as part of government and now you and I working together saying, well, how are you actually, you know, looking from the yeah. external from the external into those silos? Yeah. Well, um, and it's an interesting one because I don't talk a lot about this because it was a long time ago, but, you know, I was working, started my public service career in environmental policy and, you know, that's a really interesting one to look at. It was a while ago because at the Commonwealth level, you've got very little leverage and you've got very little opportunity to change things at the local level. So there are all sorts of legislative and jurisdictional challenges and what I did there and I carried through my career was looking at policy from the perspective of value add and impact and then demonstrating that. And for people who do policy, they don't tend to say, well, let's do a pilot about, you know, what this will look like in practice. Let's do a trial of something. And that was a really powerful way of getting people on board. They could see, particularly at the state government level, they could see opportunities for a whole range of policy initiatives that I was involved in and and could see that they weren't going to, you know, tip the apple cart up and they weren't turn their world all upside down, but they were going to have a positive impact and it was going to be something they could leverage in all sorts of different ways. I think we probably don't have a lot of experience in that anymore. And, you know, there's nothing like achieving something when you have very little influence, very little power, very little authority. You really have to think about doing it differently. And I think... You know, that would be one of the things I would say about public sector at all levels. You know, think more about how you would do this if you had no legislative framing, if you had no influence on people, because it has to be powerful and impactful to get people on board voluntarily 
rather than being forced to do so. Yep. And I think some of, again, some of what's happening across Australia in the, the regional development space, driven by local councils, driven by entities like the Port of Townsville, they're, they're thinking about this in that way. They, they know no one has to come with them on this journey, but what would get them on the journey and what would keep them on the journey. And, I mean, again, this is the sort of stuff, we, we've spent 12 months, 18 months, you and I, we looked at, from the beginning of COVID-19, we both said collectively together in things we've written, we've written individually, we've talked a lot about this. COVID-19 has brought this amazing opportunity to reset. There's no doubt, um, without being overly um, critical, there's no doubt that you know, there is a habit of wanting to, to go to an interdepartmental committee to make sure that we're doing a review that looks like we're bringing everyone together. You're talking about a very different type of leadership. And one of the beautiful analogies that you've, you've written a couple of times we've talked about is this issue of, well... When it comes to nation building, this country did some really amazing things in the 70s. We built some great big infrastructure that had lasting cross-portfolio impacts. Impacts. So, you know, if we look to the Snowy River Hydro scheme, what we really see is something that brought jobs, people, migration, uh, economic activity. You know, it's, it's a muscle that, that analogy you use, it's a muscle that hasn't been flexed for some time. I mean, how do we get these people? So we're seeing it now, we're seeing it, we've got our case study. What's the big challenges now for us to really drive that forward, do you think? Look, I, I, th- I think there's a lot in here. I, um, you know, as I said, uh, regional communities uh, are thinking about this and defining their own future and doing that in a way that attracts others and you know, other jurisdictions in particular. I'm talking about state and uh, federal uh, government. You know, I think one of the key things about those big nation-building ventures of the past is that they weren't an end in, in themselves. You know, they did understand the connection with community and with economic prosperity. And, you know, one of the things that, that's key for Australia's security at the moment is economic prosperity and social cohesion are the ways that we're going to get there. So it's not just about thinking of security in the context of what's happening internationally. It comes from within. Lots of communities around Australia are thinking in this way and it's challenging the power paradigm within public sector and within governments. Again, if you're thinking about a minister wanting to put themselves forward as the creator and the investor and the the focal point for a particular area, they can't do that anymore and... You know, when I was in government and increasingly now, you you do see this need for collaboration and for those ministers and not just within a government but cross government to come together to really share a vision and to work at the vision. And I think that's a big shift in the paradigm that we've experienced recently. Yep. And I think just sort of summing all that up, you know, we both talked about this. This isn't about public sector that isn't doing the right thing at the moment. It isn't no. about um, that at all. It isn't about an underperformance issue. It, there's been a really big change in circumstances. Um, whether you look at the bushfires, whether you look at COVID-19, whether you look at the um, geopolitical context, we've got a whole range of really quite uh, amazing opportunities if we think bigger Uh, if we accept that there's a paradigm shift and if we look beyond whole of government in the terms of what whole of government thinking has become over the last, say, decade or so and look towards bridging those silos as we've seen in um, towns and what we really get there is the benefit is greater greater than the actual sum of its parts and that's what we really found. And I think, you know, for me, one last comment I would make about all of that is that we've got to be really, really careful not reaching back into 2019 
as the, the comfort zone last year and even this year have taught us that the things that we had didn't serve us well, we've got this opportunity to really change a lot of things and it just takes a little bit of vision, a little bit of courage, I think. Yep. And look, I totally agree. I think, you know, you do hear that in the public and private sector, a lot of people want to go back to the way it was and you can't blame them. However, uh, the world is a very different place as a result of all those factors and once, you know, that famous quote, once the blinds come down, you can't unsee what you see. So I don't think we're going to go backwards to go forwards. Um, it really does require a look forward and a, and a really new approach and, and, you know, I commend the local government, state government, federal government and all the stakeholders who've really tried to make... Townsville Port work and I, I wish them well for their journey um, and I know you and I watch this space uh, for our listeners here. Jill and I look forward to doing lots more in this space around nation building and thinking bigger in our great country. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon.